On Thursday morning, my cell phone rang, and a hoarse voice on the other end said, Brother, do you think you could preach for me this Sabbath? <laughs> I had made a promise several years ago to Pastor Chad that if he ever reached a moment when he really needed someone to preach in an emergency, if I was in town, he could call me. And so he claimed that promise this week. He asked, he said, now, by chance, since we're preaching this series on the book of Acts, might you have anything about Acts chapter 10, the story of Peter on the rooftop, the great sheet let down? I smiled because that is exactly the sermon I preached on November 14th on video for this congregation. But I got to thinking about it and realized that there is another story in Scripture that focuses on the same city where Peter had his vision about inclusiveness, about the expansion of God's kingdom. There is a story from the Old Testament that we are supposed to be thinking of when we hear Peter's story in Acts chapter 10. I'm taking you this morning to that older story. The world will not be understood. Put on a cap, put on a hood. Listen, do you hear me? Good. The world will not be understood. More than 60 years ago, the great literary critic Mark Van Doren wrote those lines to try to sum up the essence of comedy in human experience. In 26 words, Four lines, he came as close as anyone probably ever has to the heart of why most of us are drawn to things we think of as comic. Comedy proclaims that human beings in the world are not fully rational, but we shouldn't fret because we haven't figured everyone out just yet. Comedy celebrates the clownishness that makes us wear those crazy hats at birthday parties and mortarboards at graduations. Comedy revels in disguises, the masks and the capes and the hidden identities that are only symbols of really how hidden we are from each other. Comedy understands that despite our best efforts, uh, communication is always a dangerous enterprise. The words I say may not even be the words I mean, never mind the words you hear. The world will not be understood. Put on a cap, put on a hood. Listen, do you hear me? Good. The world will not be understood. It should be obvious that when I talk about comedy this morning, I mean something different than whatever CBS is offering up on Thursday nights. Some of you are old enough to remember shows like Seinfeld and Frasier and friends before the reunion. We howled with laughter when Kramer tried to pour himself into jeans far too tight for a human being. But today, we laugh at, at the misunderstandings in Bob Hart's Abishola or the neighborhood as men and women struggle to deal with different racial and cultural realities and the tensions that exist in society.
But comedy, before the television age at least, comedy has always been about something more than just laughter. Yes, comedy is always about the irrational. And comedy is about clownishness, and, and comedy is about disguise, and comedy is certainly about miscommunication. But comedy, comedy is also about hope. Hope. At its heart, comedy proclaims that though we're frequently fools, though we often act against our own interests, though we hide from each other and often tell each other lies, we are ultimately redeemable if only for the reason that there is a providence in this universe that has a great affection for fools like us. Tragedy proclaims that humans are noble but flawed. Comedy proclaims that humans are foolish but ultimately savable. And if you have your eyes open and your ears open, then you know that comedy is all about hope. Now, if some of you are scratching your heads and wondering what all of this could have to do with the story of Jonah, I've got you right where I want you. We're so used to reading the book of Jonah, in fact, the whole Bible, through the grim lenses of high seriousness that we often miss the really comic portions of Scripture. We miss the humor when David cuts a piece from Saul's robe when the king goes into a cave to uh, relieve himself. We miss the lovely laughter when Joseph finally reveals himself to his brothers as, yes, the governor of all Egypt. We miss the gentle sarcasm of Jesus when he nicknames James and John Boagenes, the sons of thunder. Our grim Victorianism has made us read our Bibles with clenched teeth even while the Holy Spirit has often been trying to tease a smile out of us. So this morning, when we look at the book of Jonah, let's allow ourselves the privilege of relaxing, even smiling, perhaps even laughing at a man who is in many ways very much like us. I think all of us would probably understand the comedy of Jonah a bit better if the story ended at chapter 3. Classic comedy has always had what the critics call a U-shaped plot. U-shaped. You know, we meet the hero in scene 1. He begins to have problems in scene 2. In scene 3, it gets so bad we have to cover our eyes. But in scene 4, there's a dramatic rescue or a turn of events, and there he is, redeemed and restored, just like us, at the end of the play. And when you look at the plot line of Jonah, you see a story much like that. Jonah hears God's command to go to Nineveh, but Jonah runs away on a ship bound for Tarshish. God sends a storm to buffet the ship. Jonah gets thrown overboard, and he ends at the very bottom of the U, at the very lowest place you can be, in the belly of a fish, down among the kelp and the seaweed. Then... Jonah comes to his senses. He confesses his sins, and, and yes, you actually can laugh. He actually gets vomited out on dry land. 
This is not what you would call a dignified rescue operation. Finally, with his hair probably turned white and his skin pickled from all the gastric juices of the fish, Jonah preaches to the people of Nineveh and they too are converted. End of story. Bring on the applause. Ring down the curtain. Let the house lights come up. The play is over. But actually, it's not. As the commercials say, but wait, there's more. There's a strange epilogue in the story of Jonah that throws our previous understandings on their head. The story isn't over yet. And far from any, everything ending up, uh, you know, tidy and restored, the central character, the main man, is not at all reconciled. Chapter 4 and verse 1 makes us want to scratch our heads, for it says, But all of this was very displeasing to Jonah, and he became angry. Far from ending restored and forgiven, when we first meet Jonah in chapter 4, he's actually shaking his fist at God. In his fury at this gracious thing that God has done in saving Nineveh, Jonah has fire in his eyes as he rages against the goodness of God. Take your seats, folks. The drama isn't over yet. I guess chapter three was just the false ending. The joke's on us. The play's not over yet. And when we listen to the indictment that Jonah hurls against the sky, we find ourselves wondering how in the world is God going to bring this angry man around? If the comedy can't end until the central figure is restored and forgiven, uh, we may be here quite a while. Jonah is really, really mad. Listen to what he says. Oh, Lord! Is not this what I said while I was still in my own country? This is why I fled to Tarshish at the beginning. I knew that you are a gracious God and merciful, slow to anger, abounding in steadfast love, and ready to relent from punishing. Jonah draws himself up to his full height. He tightens his belt. He takes a prosecutor's stance in the courtroom of the universe. The real problem with you, God, he charges, is that you are gracious. <laughs> and on top of that, you're slow to anger. Some say that you actually abound in steadfast love. And at a time, God, when everyone is concerned about career criminals, like those Ninevites over there, the line on you is that you're one of those squishy liberals who's soft on punishment. If you're not going to kill them, Lord, then go ahead, kill me. All right, all right, it really is funny. We can give ourselves permission to smile. The preposterous sight of Jonah, this narrow little nationalist, shouting, I accuse at God, it, it touches our spiritual funny bone and makes us laugh, even though we're reading a Bible story. The wonderful qualities of God that make us love him. Those qualities that are celebrated throughout the scripture, they are the very items which Jonah lists in his indictment against God. God's goodness is his greatest failing. 
God's kindness is his greatest mistake. God's patience is just a coddling of the unregenerate. God's mercy in not destroying Nineveh is proof positive that God is not the fit ruler of the universe. Well, this, my friends, is the stuff of comedy. And even before we read the rest of chapter 4, we know what it's going to be about. Somehow, God is going to try to bring this man around. Somehow, God is going to try to cool the red-hot lava of his temper. Somehow, God's going to try to tease a smile out of his clenched teeth. How will God do it? Let's sit back and watch. Grace at work is a wonderful thing to see. I remember the first time I went to see a production of Shakespeare's As You Like It. I was 20 years old and deeply in love with literature. And when the train pulled into Stratford-upon-Avon and the Royal Shakespeare Company, I knew exactly where I had to go first. I hurried to the ticket window and I pulled out my wallet to buy a first-rate seat for that night's performance. I knew just the seat I wanted, right in the main floor, center right, just below the stage. But alas, alack, there were no seats left in the theater on the main floor or in the first balcony or in the second balcony. In fact, there were no seats left in the theater at all that night. There was an option, however, the ticket seller told me that sometimes students like me took advantage of. For 80 pence, or at that time about $1.30, I could purchase the right to stand on a narrow perch in the third balcony and peer down at the stage from about 50 feet in the air. I swallowed hard and bit my lip. This was not going to be the rich aesthetic experience I had planned. But down went my 80 pence, and when the curtain rose, I was standing there in the third balcony, peering down at a brilliant stage. I have never known three hours to pass more quickly in my life. There, unfolding on the stage before me, was a story about grace, a story about redemption, a story about aching, bungled lives, finding love and restoration. My heart sang with every minstrel's tune. And yes, I admit it, I fell deeply and madly in love with the lead actress that night. Even though I was standing in the third balcony and she never saw me, it was supremely an evening of hope for me. Oh, the bed at the B&B was lumpy that night, and the covers were none too warm, but who cared? I was awash in a sea of gladness, for I had really seen grace working itself out in a human story. How will God's grace be revealed to Jonah? And what is it that will finally reach him? How will God's grace 
be revealed to us? And how will it eventually change us? I want to suggest to you, my friends, there are at least four things that God did to reach the heart of Jonah in chapter four of this story. And even though we aren't used to thinking about them that way, all four are actually signs of God's grace and signs of God's goodness. We've learned to recognize God's grace when he sends us something we don't deserve, like love, or friends, or money. And we've learned to identify God's grace in those moments when we see his patience or his tenderness. But can we see his grace operating in other ways, in ways that seem challenging or confrontive or painful, even frustrating? Can we actually learn to say with Paul and really mean it, all things work together for good for those who love God and are called according to his purpose? God's first gracious act toward Jonah in chapter 4 is recorded in verse 6. And it tells us that the Lord God appointed a bush and made it come up over Jonah to give him shade over his head to save him from his discomfort. We've just learned that this angry, despondent prophet has settled himself down on one of the bleak hills east of Nineveh in the hopes that God will yet destroy the people of Nineveh. And even though he's utterly angry with God, Jonah still has a measure of practicality left. While he's certainly hot with God, he, want, he doesn't want to be all that hot. So he builds for himself a little sukkah, a booth, a little structure made out of stones and sticks and brush. Give him something like shade in the heat of the day. It's another one of those marvelous little ironies in the book of Jonah. That the man who has just railed against God for being so kind and gracious and compassionate, he builds for himself a booth, just like the Israelites did each year at the Feast of Booths to commemorate their wilderness wanderings, when God was kind and gracious and compassionate to them. But Jonah, of course, misses the irony. His clenched lips will never relax in a smile. He's so angry with God that he'll never be amused or overjoyed again. Or at least, that's what he thinks. Meanwhile, God, the master strategist, has figured out a way to crack Jonah's dry, rancorous heart. Such a delightfully simple thing God does. With that marvelous creativity that spoke stars and planets and trees and rivers into existence, God speaks a little plant, a kikayon, perhaps a castor oil plant, into existence. He must have given it a dose of some divine miracle grow because it grows so fast that in one day it completely covers Jonah's little booth, fills in all the gaps in shade with large, lovely, green leaves. And initially, at least, 
God's act of grace seems to achieve what God intended. Jonah was very happy. Jonah was delighted. Some versions say that Jonah was joyed with a great joy. From a first glance, it seems Jonah's attitudes are beginning to move in a positive direction. God knows us so well. He understands what a powerful motivator gratitude can be in our lives. Call our thoughts and our, our actions back to him. When blessings come to us that we don't deserve, when richness flows into our lives that we had no part in producing, many of us, maybe all of us, at some point are willing to bow our heads and at least say, thank God. Thank God for the good thing. It's hard to be angry with the one who has just given you good fortune. It's really difficult to continue raging against the one who has just filled your mouth with good things. God blesses Jonah with a gift that's cool and green and lovely. And I want to suggest, my friends, that if you look at the last week or the last month or even the last 16 months of your life, you too will find God's graciousness in the undeserved things that have come into your life. Perhaps it was that letter from a friend who found your address after 10 years and she wrote to tell you how precious you still are to her. Perhaps it was the church member who filled the trunk of your car with corn and tomatoes and cucumbers when your food budget was really low. Perhaps it was that $500 check from a favorite aunt who sent it six months ahead of your birthday and with a little note that said, I just can't wait to see you happy. In your life, in my life, God's goodness has been at work to call us out of our hot little dusty selves into the coolness of his shade, his peace, his love, his laughter. In his grace, God gives us gifts to call our hearts to him. Thank God for the shade. But the evidence suggests that while Jonah experienced happiness, he didn't experience gratitude. He congratulated himself on his good fortune in having the plant come up and cover him instead of thanking God that the plant had come up and covered him. The gift that was supposed to lead him back to God only led him deeper into himself. So God, the great comedian. God had to try another tack. The text says when dawn came up the next day, God appointed a worm that attacked the bush so that it withered. If blessings wouldn't crack this heart, what would the removal of blessings do? If good fortune wouldn't bring Jonah to the point of praise, would bad fortune bring him to the point of prayer? 
If at first you don't succeed, well, you can finish it. Try, try again. And God was certainly trying again. This is right about the place where many of us get uncomfortable with the story of Jonah. Pieces of it, they don't fit with our usual theology. We have it as an article of faith that God is only the author of blessings and good things and gifts and shade. We can't imagine a God whose grace can be seen in poverty and pestilence and things withheld and the hot, unfiltered sun on our heads. How is God's grace in those things? But if you read even the briefest sketch of the book of Jonah, you discover that God loves using unlikely things to accomplish his will. Things like great winds on the sea and a great fish that swallowed up Jonah and a bush that came up in one day and a worm that destroyed the bush. His purposes for Nineveh and for Jonah meant that he could use anything to reach the hard-hearted people. And that group, that group included Jonah. I certainly don't want to claim that every bad thing that happens in our lives is God's way of trying to get our attention. But the last few years of living and the last few months of living have convinced me that one of God's most effective ways of reaching me is to make my circumstances tight. Put me in a narrow spot cause me to cry out to him if only because I'm in need. Maybe you've sensed that truth as well. When the paycheck won't stretch any further and the bills pile up, your heart goes out to God. When the car breaks down and the wheels come off, your heart goes out to God. When the plane gets missed, the schedule is blown, we sit there in the waiting rooms of our lives and our hearts go out to God. Just because we're so frustrated with him, we start a truthful conversation with him. In his grace, God sometimes takes away his gifts to call our hearts out to him. Thank God for the worm as well. The third thing that God did to undo Jonah's grand funk was to make him miserable. There's a great old English word to describe how Jonah was acting at this point in the story, and the word is churlish. Even sounds like what it means. Churlish. It means boorish, vulgar, rude, bad-tempered. Yeah, all of us have known some churlish people in our time. People who were determined to be angry at all costs. People who refused to eat lemons because lemons are too sweet. People who cling to their animosities as their reason for living. 
Jonah had diametrically opposed himself to God. If God could forgive Nineveh, Jonah would not. If God would be merciful, Jonah would be tough. If God would be patient, Jonah would be quick in his judgments. And so God set about to rattle Jonah's world, or actually, actually to make it miserably hot, like a week ago. The word we Westerners call the Scirocco, the hot, dry wind that drives men mad and overheats their brains. God made the Scirocco wind to blow from the east. It says it right in the text. And Jonah sat in his thinning shelter, felt the sun beat down on his head, felt the moisture being sucked up out of his skin. And in his misery, he asked that he might die. He said, it is better for me to die than to live. If you've ever spent much time around a churlish person, a touchy, irritable person, then you know it doesn't take much to set them off. The house may be comfortable for everyone else, but they alone will curse the air conditioning. The path may be bright with flowers galore, but they have a rock in their shoe. The church may be ministering to hundreds of others, but no one visited them last month. It's hard to tell with a churlish person whether they're just feeling miserable or whether they're just acting miserably. So we can't really say whether Jonah was really in any physical peril as he sat there in his little oven of a booth and wished out loud that he might die. You know, we have all seen overly dramatic types before. But the key point that we can't miss is that God was the cause of that east wind that swept across the hot sands and made Jonah really miserable. God knew that physical discomfort might crack apart Jonah's angry heart and let some healing slip in. And in the repertoire of grace, God will use whatever works. In his grace, God sometimes sends distress to call our hearts to him. Thank God for the hot winds as well. Thank God. God's last gracious act to Jonah is found in verses 9 to 11, for where God enters into a dialogue with Jonah. First, we probably don't appreciate what conversation with God means to Jonah or to us. 21st century Christianity has taught us a breezy familiarity with God. We've learned a casualness that lets us say anything we want to God, but lets him only say nice things to us. And so we can hardly grasp what an incredible condescension it is that the great ruler of the universe the one who made the stars and the planets and the rivers and the trees and the bush and the worm, he actually bends low, he bows low as only true love can do and he asks us questions and he listens for our answers. Jonah certainly didn't appreciate the fact that God was dialoguing with him. If he had any proper sense of who God was, he would have prostrated himself on that burning sand and never dared to lift his eyes up. 
But God graciously overlooks the arrogance of Jonah just as he overlooks our arrogance. He overlooks the churlishness of Jonah just as he overlooks our occasional churlishness. He starts a conversation with Jonah and with us that's designed to turn both Jonah and us around. God is determined to tease out of Jonah an admission of his foolish pride. So he asks him for the second time, is it right, is it right for you to be angry? God sounds like a counselor now, helping someone identify their real feelings and decide whether they are appropriate for the situation. It's a picture of magnificent humility that we're seeing when God dialogues with Jonah. It's as if the greatest linguist in the world has agreed to talk to your two-year-old. God doesn't need to defend his sovereign right to save the people of Nineveh, but he does. God doesn't need to justify his decision to be gracious, but he does. My friends, this dialogue with God isn't something that Jonah deserved or that we deserve. He didn't have any right to make God answer all his questions or jump through all his hoops, but it was the grace of God, the grace of God that allowed God to bow and to bend, to listen, to question. When it finally comes home to our hearts, what a privilege we have, what an incredible privilege that the great God of the universe is so gracious to talk with us and walk with us and offer to be our friend. God says to your heart and mine, come, come. Let us reason together. He understands we have limited insight. We have limited faith. Many things aren't clear to us. And it's a sign of his profound grace in our lives that he still, still wants to be with us. It was his spirit prompting you this morning while you lay there in the darkness waiting for the light to come up. It was his spirit that prompted you to pray. And you did. It was his spirit prompting you to pick up that Bible on the end table in the living room this morning, saying, let's, let's go to the Psalms and take a walk through green pastures. It was his spirit singing to you this morning through the music you listened to on the radio or your streaming service that said, taste and see. Taste and see that the Lord, the Lord is good. In his grace, God starts a dialogue with us. Thank God for the questions as well. How will God reach Jonah? How will God reach us? The answer, my friends, by now is readily apparent. The answer is any way he can. Any way he can. If blessings will make us stop arguing with God and rest in his presence, then God will send us shade in our lives. If removing those blessings will humble our pride and call us to call out to him, 
God will send the worm in our lives. If physical discomfort and mental stress will make us cry out to him, then God will stir up a hot east wind in our lives. And if we can be reached by reason and by questions, then God will sit and talk with us day by day and week by week. He will probe us and challenge us and rebuke us and soothe us until at long last, at long last, we are finally, finally in our right mind, which scripture calls the mind of Christ. We said at the beginning that comedy is always about hope. That fundamental human hope that the story will end in love and restoration. But we don't know how Jonah's story ended. This is the only book of 66 in scripture that ends with a question mark. But we can know with certainty today how our stories will end. God promises he who began a good work in you will bring it to completion at the day of Jesus Christ. The restoration will be complete. The recovery will be full. The reconciliation will be sweet. If today Today we bow at the feet of our Savior. Today let's surrender to that grace that never gives up and never gives in. Let's give him permission to do whatever it takes to bring us to our knees and to bring us to our senses. For his voice is the sound of laughter and his call has the ring of mirth. The Lord of the ever after is working his joy on earth. Go find that joy.